0: Well, we want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles now to the book of Ephesians. We have been studying through this book this past year, and we're on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, today talking about the attitudes of godly employees and a godly employer. This section of text is very pertinent to many individuals, and even if you aren't an employer or employee, then it applies because we all work and God cares about our work. And so here we come to a passage, as Paul has written this book to be a circulatory letter, a letter to be passed around, a letter that he wrote in prison and wanted to have these things, these flow out of a spirit-filled life. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, it begins as such. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin this morning. Our Father, once again, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' name, Amen. As I shared earlier, this section of text follows along in the section of Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Spirit... And here he comes after several very practical relationships that we've talked about in the past number of weeks. Husbands and wives, children and parents. And now he comes to a very practical, very practical section of our text. And that is of slaves and masters or servants and those who are masters or in our time employees and employers. But undoubtedly... There have been some who have taken this passage and wrenched it out of its context to justify slavery. Someone might argue from this passage that slavery is acceptable. After all, Paul doesn't condemn it, and if there was any place that he would condemn it, there would be a prime place. Others would criticize Christianity because it did not condemn slavery. After all, there is no blanket, uniform rejection of slavery throughout the Bible. So it begs the question: What was slavery like in the New Testament? How many slaves were there? or how were they treated? Arkant Hughes, in his commentary, talks about this subject. And addressing the subject of slavery in the letter would have affected, you see, households. You would be sitting here at the Church of Ephesus and probably a large percentage, maybe a third of you, would be slaves. There would be masters who were sitting there. There would be slaves who were sitting there. There would be former slaves who would be sitting there. They would be called freedmen. And then there would be other folks who didn't own slaves, primarily because they were poor. But back in the times of the scriptures, prior to the time of Christ, there was an estimated some 60 million slaves. That's a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire. You think about the population of Seattle, maybe about a half a million, over a half a million, or the greater Seattle area, including the four counties of King Kitsap, Snohomish, etc., and you'd have about three million people. But just you imagine the population of America, which has some over 300 million people, you're talking about one in every five people in the United States, comparatively would have been a slave. And in major cities like Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, there would have been about a third of the population. A third of the population would have been full of slaves. And compared to America, it would have been one in five or so. Some slaves were not citizens, and some slaves were citizens, and you could become a citizen by becoming a slave. And there were people in the church that would be sitting there, and they would perk up, because you see, this would apply to most households in the New Testament times. And it is true that many of the slaves back then would have been mistreated, would have been treated very poorly, but primarily the time before Christ, the time before Christianity. Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century, would write, and he would write, quote, A slave is a kind of possession with a soul. Or in his Nicomachean Ethics, he would write, uh, A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. And there were accounts written as well of slave owners who would throw their slave, One, one threw their slave into a pond of lamprey eels for breaking a crystal goblet. And Augustus had a slave who killed a quail and he had that slave crucified. And if you've seen the movie Spartacus, well, you know that slaves were mistreated and there was a slave uprising. That was back in the first century BC, before Christ came on the scene. But during the New Testament times, during the time of Christ, Times had changed in terms of how they would treat slaves. And so, one of the changes that a slave would have was, they probably wouldn't grow old being a slave. In fact, most slaves were set free by the age of 30. In fact, one time there were so many slaves being set free... Augustus Caesar set out legislation to curb their release so there wouldn't be such an influx of freedmen. And slaves had rights during New Testament times. They had rights to own property. They had rights to own other slaves. They had rights to invest money. They had rights to even buy their own freedom. And typically, if you were walking down the street... In a New Testament city, you wouldn't necessarily even be able to recognize a slave either. It's not as if they would walk down the street with some shackles on their legs and a chain hanging from their neck. A slave would be set aside and they would have somewhat of the same socioeconomic level as their master would. So if a master was a baker, well, they would perhaps dress like a baker. If their master was a very wealthy politician, their slave or servant would look very much the part as well. And so we can understand why Paul here in this text doesn't write specifically against slavery. Because some slavery, in fact, was voluntary. As I mentioned, some people would give up their freedom in order to become a citizen by putting themselves in To slavery or indentured men. In fact, there were some laws even in the Old Testament that would allow, for instance, a thief. If he stole something and wasn't able to pay it back, well, he would be able to indenture himself until he satisfied his debts. And Israelites in the Old Testament were allowed to purchase slaves from the nations around them, but not a fellow Israelite. But if a fellow Israelite decided that they wanted to indenture themselves, i.e. in order to pay off a debt or whatnot, then they could do so. But by law, they could not, they could not be employed for more than six years. And after that six-year period of being a slave, they would be let go with a very nice severance pay at the end of that year. And those who were Israelites were prohibited in the scriptures, in the book of Exodus, from abusing their slaves because if they did, uh, their slaves would have to be set free. And all slaves would be set free at the end of 50 years, at the end of the year of Jubilee. And so there were guidelines in the Old Testament as to how slaves ought to be treated and how in the New Testament times it was much more akin to employers and employees. In Roman Empire, when it disintegrated in the first century there and did so, I, mean, I should say in the centuries following the New Testament times, the vast system of slavery crumbled with it, due in part through New Testament Christianity. The Old Testament, though, prohibits what we see today in some parts and in our history of American-European slavery. The whole prohibition against modern-day slavery of taking someone against their own will and subjecting them to labor or servitude violates the principles found even in Exodus 21.16 which says he who kidnaps a man whether he sells him or he is found in his possession shall surely be put to death. So we see even in the New Testament the brutality of of slavery as we would conceive it in American and European slavery of some type of forced servitude violates many biblical principles. But the servanthood here spoken of in the New Testament during that time, again, was much more akin to employer-employee relationships, though there is a bondage that is there as well. But American and European slavery... Well, it was eventually brought down because of Christians. There were many factors: the preaching of people like George Whitfield or John Wesley, and the statesmanship of people like William Pitt, William Wilberforce. The sad thing is that today, around the world, servitude and slavery is still happening. Although it is much more underground here in the U.S. and in Europe, people from other countries are smuggled in and they're forced, mostly women and children, smuggled to work in homes or in brothels. So the application of this passage isn't necessarily condoning that. Of course, it's not. In fact, it is more, as I mentioned, a reference To those who might serve underneath the master. Those who might serve, and in today's application, that of an employer, employee, or anyone that you would work underneath. And so here the scriptures outline for us principles by which we, we are to work underneath employers, or those who are our masters. And it gives attitudes for those who are employees and those who are masters. The first attitude that is given there in verse 5 is that attitude of obedience, first of all. It's an obedience attitude that one is to have towards their boss. And it is in the present tense, it's to be continuous and it's according to that flesh. Now you wonder, why is that little phrase included there? Well, it's because it's a reminder that this is going to be only a temporary situation. A temporary situation. You're only going to work for a period of time underneath this particular supervisor, this particular boss. And in the case discussed previously, obedience is always on the condition that it is consistent with the will of God. And so, Paul reminds them to be obedient, just as he does in the book of Titus. If you turn your Bibles to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, a few books over. He reminds those in this context of Titus 2, verse 9 and 10, of those who are bond slaves. And he tells Titus, this is what he is to remind them of. Titus 2, 9 and 10 says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. But showing all good faith so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every place, in every respect. Workers, you see, aren't to be argumentative, aren't to be stealing, aren't to be causing trouble, aren't to be causing difficulties in the workplace. They're to be eager to obey because God has given them those supervisors over them. And it's very practical because, you see, employers today, they'll often ask their employees to hide the truth, to cover up, not to say things that would damage perhaps the company, even though they are required to by some other outside auditor, to disregard information perhaps that might damage others. Or the company, I should say, the company's bottom line, or to use funds to purchase goods that are not to be used for the company. In other words, they're to lie, cheat, or steal from the company. And all of those things employees are often asked or suggested to do. And yet our obedience is not only to be to our employers, but it is to be first to God. And the attitude behind an employee is to be eager to please their boss, to please their supervisor, to do what their supervisor has asked them to do, as long as it is consistent and not violation of the Word of God. Secondly, the Scriptures say with fear and trembling or to honor and respect. To honor and respect or fear and trembling, to hold them in high regard. Even if they're a bad manager or a poor one or a very difficult person to work for. I remember the Lord had to to teach me this because I remember living in California and I've shared with you about how my particular supervisor at that time was very difficult, very fault finding and made us work sitting on the floor when others would just walk over us etc and we would do everything and anything from fetch the coffee to do our paperwork We no desk, no chair, no nothing and uh, you'd come in every day and you know I'd, I'd go and leave at the end of the day and I'd ask is there, if I completed everything, is everything okay? Yes, everything is great only to have the next morning, day after day this is what you did wrong, this is what you did wrong this is what you did wrong And I'd come home every day and I would want, at that time when I was in seminary, I'd want to just unload on someone. But God has given to me a very quiet friend. His name was Pastor Henry. And he hardly talked. And he lived in his bedroom. To which I would want to complain. But the Lord had taught me in a very difficult way that, you know what? It would not be right. It would not be right to gossip and slander against my own boss, but to deal with my own attitude, and talk with the Lord about my situation. And so God had had a time with me to teach me how to honor and respect them, even though they weren't so very nice. And so it's funny because three months later I landed my friend Henry a job underneath the same boss. (laughs) But our attitude towards our boss is to honor and respect, whether that boss is your parent, whether that boss... Your relative, whether that boss is your friend, especially if they are a believer. First Timothy tells us what we're to do. First Timothy, if you flip in your Bibles a couple of books over, First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If they are a Christian, you're to show them a particular regard that is not lower, not to take advantage of them, thinking, you know what, they're a Christian. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So if your boss is a Christian, work all the harder to honor and respect them, to show them your eagerness to obey. Thirdly, Verse 5, it says, In sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not only are we to obey and share honor and respect to our boss, but we're to sincerely do it from the heart. It means that there's no ulterior motive. There's no hypocrisy. A sincere heart isn't doing it to make someone else to look bad or with sarcasm in the heart or the motive to brag or not out of pride or not out of resentment and grumbling. And ask yourself, why does my boss ask me to do something like this when I deserve better, that strong sense of entitlement, but sincerity of heart, just as one would work for Christ. Number four, hardworking when others aren't looking. A fourth attitude is to be hardworking when others aren't looking, not by way of eye service, it says, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, our, our Our work isn't to be somehow ratcheted up when the boss is around. All of you remember the catastrophe of 9-11. And since that time, our nation's been on alert. We praise God that there's nothing that has happened such as that since that time. But after 9-11, about three years later, there was a series of bombings, ten bombs in Spain, Madrid. Killing almost 200 and wounding about 1,800 more. The Philadelphia Inquirer had an article entitled Device Found on Tracks. It was two months later, there was a scare in Philadelphia. It was on May 5th. There was a conductor for Pennsylvania's Transit Authority. And what they did was they discovered there was a transmitter. There was a transmitter on the tracks near Philly's 30th Street Station, I'd read. It was an electronic transmitter, and so the agents from Homeland Security came out, the FBI came out, and there was a whole swarm on the scene. And they discovered this mysterious gadget. It was, in fact, a motion detector designed to send a signal to a transmitter nearby. And there was a lot of uh, tense moments until there was a train mechanic that... Step forward and he admitted to installing the transmitter. Why? You see, this particular train mechanic worked the night shift. And he had installed the motion detector to sound an alarm in his office, you see, because when his boss came by, he wanted to be able to wake up from his nap so that he wouldn't be caught and he would look busy when his boss showed up. And now today, you look on the Internet, there's all sorts of things that they advertise. You can buy all sorts of boss key softwares. You know, you hit the key and boom, up comes a nice spreadsheet. There's all sorts of ways people hide from their non-productive work. And sometimes I wonder to myself, boy, these people who always log into Facebook, how in the world don't they have a job? I realize some companies have certain allowances, you know, minimal impact to uh, their employment, negligible impact that people are, are free to do whatever, and that's their policy. But if you wouldn't do it when your boss is around, why would you do it at all? You shouldn't. Not as men-pleasers, it says. We as Christian employees ought to have a higher standard. I have a friend who has a, who has a self-employed job that others support them through and they're working for a nonprofit organization what they do is in order that they might have integrity because no one watches them is that they work with a little alarm clock and then this little alarm clock goes off every hour a little beep but it keeps them on track so they can make sure that they log their hours with integrity as they work for the Lord and the question you see isn't oh only what does my boss think of my work The scriptures here say, what does Christ think of my work ethic? What does God evaluate my work ethic to be? Am I responsible? Am I faithful in our culture? Am I punctual or do I go beyond what one would expect? Or do we only work when someone else is looking, being content to arrive late and leave early? Fifthly, our attitude is to be working for God. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord, not to men, it says. You see, we recognize our employer is not just our boss. Our employer is God. God has given to you that job. And we are to work in a way that would please God. You see, whether or not you... Degree or disagree, we're called to submit. Just as in all of these relationships that we've been talking about. Husbands Husbands and wives, children and parents, and here employers and employees. Our attitude is to submit and to obey to them. That is the same attitude. That is the attitude that we're to have. Some have a difficult time. When that comes to pass, I was listening to an employee at Microsoft just this past week. They, they, they're not a believer. They don't attend here. And, and I don't uh, yeah, I don't think they're a believer. And he was just sharing about how their, their boss, they had a new manager, came in. Came in and the first thing he said to his group was, uh, I'm not here to make any friends. To which he proceeded actually to do. And he... Put an un- unreasonable amount of work on the group, such that they'll never, they're, they're, he's never content, always finding something wrong with no positive affirmation, and everybody in the group was having a, such a difficult time. And I would have told him if he were a believer that, you know what, that's true, I've had a boss like that too, but if we work for God. Our employer is God. God has granted to us that job for that time. And perhaps God has a purpose. He does have a purpose for those who are His children. Perhaps to mold you. Perhaps to make you into a more patient person. A person of good character. Perhaps that you might display an attitude and a testimony to the other employees around you who would otherwise have such a sour attitude or sour perspective. There's some reason by which God has you there, working in that particular context. And yet, we can see things from a different view than others do. It's like that old parable where, they, where the visitor came across three stonemasons who were working on building this church, this cathedral. And he asked the first stonemason, and he says, what are you doing? And the man says, I'm, I'm, chipping, I'm chipping out these stones. And he asks the second one, what are you doing? And the man says, well, I'm, I'm here, I'm making a living. And he asks the third one, and the third one replies, and he says, I'm building a great cathedral You cannot control, you see, your boss. You can't control many of the people around you. You can't control oftentimes your circumstances. But what you can control is your attitude and your perspective. And your work, you see, matters to God because God has given that job to you. It doesn't matter if you're making pastries or digging dirt or you're a homemaker or selling homes. Your work matters to God. Work is not a result of sin. Work is a result of the fall. God gave responsibilities to Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Work is a blessing and God has given it to us because there's a certain sense of fulfillment that we have. Especially when we work for God. Why? Because we work for heavenly rewards. Sixthly. It says in verse 8, Knowing that whatever good each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. You see here, work reaps rewards in heaven. Nothing good that is done will ever escape the eye of God. Nothing good that is ever done, God does not ignore. God repays and God rewards for the work that you and I do. Even the work that... The world may think is small or insignificant. God thinks is worthwhile. There was a letter I just read last week that was written by a woman named Karen Watson. She went to Iraq in march seventh of two thousand and three. She was at the Southern Baptist Convention. She went there as a missionary just a little over a year after she left, she was killed along with four other missionaries. And yet she wrote this letter to her pastors, which read, Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. With God, when God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nation's. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory my reward. His glory my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working with my people group. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simply just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. The missionary heart Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more when some think it's possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you too and my church family in His care. Salam. Karen your work no matter what it is whether it's on the mission field or delivering mail is important to God your reward is in heaven because just as she wrote we serve God our boss is God and God will provide for us reward when we follow what God has designed for us to follow in the place that he's put us in to follow in obedience whether a missionary or cook In sincerity and goodwill, showing honor and respect. Hardworking, working working for heavenly rewards because God is our master. And yet God turns here in his word in verse 9 and he turns to employers. For he says, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. The command now turns, you see, to masters, as it says here, and it says, do the same things to them. sums up the responsibility of the people that they're to oversee. The way that an employer is to treat his employees or her employees is to treat them with the same godly attitude that they are to reflect to the master. Deference, honor, respect, doing good for them, eagerness to serve them, etc. Not to threaten them. Not to threaten them or to use their authority in a way that is wrong, ruling by fear. This past week, I was sitting in a class. I had finished a course on effective management communication. And so I was in this class, you know, see, with all these managers, most of them high-tech managers. Some from Boeing or Microsoft and other people, etc. And we went around that first day of class, I remember... Not this week, but we went around the first day of class and I remember there was this one woman and she introduced herself and shared why she was in the class. And she said something to this effect. She said, you know, everyone underneath me is into this thing about whether or not I like them. Well, I tell them I don't care about liking them what matters is if they get their job done. And if they get their job done, they are happy and I am happy. If they don't get their job done, well, I'm not happy and they won't be happy. So I tell them, don't worry about whether or not I like you or not. I don't like you. I don't, not that I don't like you, but I don't like you. And you know, if they don't do their job, I'm cut and dry. I tell them what they need to do and that's all. <laughs> then she said a few seconds later, for some reason they think I'm a monster. Now, I'm thinking, boy, I'm not surprised. (laughs) That was completely different from this man sitting in the front row. I found out later he's a Christian because he came up to me because you introduced yourself. And I said, I'm a pastor. I, you know, I want to be better at communicating, etc. And a manager and that type of thing. And he was such a soft-spoken man. Very calm. (laughs) Spoke very Slowly. You'd wonder why he was there and he shared his problem was because whenever he has an emotional response, he would turn flush red like a cherry. People would comment. They couldn't even imagine this gentleman becoming angry at all. But his problem was a physiological response. And he says, and when he was asked, well, you know, why do you speak the way that you speak? And he said, well, I, I speak to people. How? How? I would want to be spoken to. And that's the sentiment that is here for those who are supervisors or employers, to treat others as they would want to be treated. That's the sentiment that is here. Why? Because God is not a, a, a person who cares about socioeconomic status. He doesn't show partiality and He will judge and reward everyone accordingly. And that is the responsibility of those who are masters. So we who are employees are to have the attitudes of eagerness to please and obey, to honor and respect, to show goodwill. Remembering that our our work matters to God and we serve God even in the context of where we work. And so too are those who are masters to show the same kind of deference to our employees. Because we all have a master who is in heaven who will judge and he will reward and so we work to please God we work to please God we ask ourselves is God pleased with the quality of the work that I do and so when we do God is pleased let's pray our father in heaven we give you thanks Lord for your word once again and Lord there are many here who work And we pray, God, that we might be faithful knowing that it is you that we serve, even through our work. May you, by your grace, O God, grant to us a strong, strong sense of integrity in our work. That we, O God, might be found faithful in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.